So we are back in Matthew chapter 5, and this morning we're going to look at verses 38 to 42. If you're just visiting with us this morning, we've been preaching through the book of Matthew for, I guess, the last year, and we are we are now in Matthew 5, again, verses 38 to 42, and let's just read the text For this morning as we begin, Jesus says there, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now these words are the the fifth of six examples of how the Lord fulfills the law. He told us in verse 17 of Matthew 5.17 that He did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And this is the fifth time that Jesus tells us what the law said, and then he says, but I say to you, and he's taking us beyond the law to show us the righteousness of true kingdom citizens. The law was meant to restrain sinful Israel from evil practices, and they needed the law to hold their sinful hearts in check. But citizens of the kingdom have new hearts, and as such, we're called to a higher standard of righteousness. The law pointed forward to this higher righteousness, and and now we're to live righteously and holily in our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our righteousness, according to verse 20, is to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If our righteousness doesn't exceed their righteousness, Jesus says we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that righteousness isn't something that that we're to, to earn or work up in ourselves, but the idea of this is that if we are truly saved, if we are truly born again, then we will live righteous and holy lives. And we've seen that the the righteousness that our Lord calls us to in this section is an internal righteousness of our hearts. We don't only refrain from murder, we're concerned about hatred in our hearts. That was 5.21 to verse 26. The true believer pursues reconciliation with those that have something against them. In verses 27 to 30, we saw a similar thing with adultery. A disciple is concerned not only with the outward act of adultery, but we are those who fight sin in the heart. We fight lustful thoughts that come into our hearts and into our minds. In verse 31 and 32, they spoke about divorce and, and marriage, marriage and divorce. The scribes and the Pharisees allowed for divorce based on the law, but Jesus holds us to a higher standard and said that what the Pharisees were doing amounted to adultery. 
The fourth example that he gave in verses 33 to 37, we saw that a a disciple of Christ is one who speaks the truth. Our yes is to be yes and our no is to be no. We are truth speakers. And what Jesus has been calling us to as his disciples is impossible for the natural man. In order to live this way, in order to live as the Lord calls us to in these verses, we must be born again. But nothing is more impossible to the natural man than what he says in our verses this morning. This fifth example, and then the one that we'll look at next week, the sixth example, is so contrary to the natural man that many have said that it's impossible to live like this in the real world. These verses that we're going to look at, verses 38 to 42, have often been misunderstood and misapplied. What does it mean to not resist the one who is evil? Does it mean that we should abolish government whose role, according to Romans 13, the the role of government in society is actually to resist evil in the world? Is that what Jesus is talking about here? Surely not. Are we to give to every beggar who asks us for money? What if they're spending it on drugs? What if they're lazy and wasteful? These are the kinds of questions that, that come to mind as we look at this passage. We need to carefully understand this section and apply it in the right sphere to our lives. I, I called this message righteousness and the self. Because to get to the root of what Jesus is teaching here, we will see that we are called to deny ourselves. We are to die to ourselves so that we can live to God. We are to give up our rights for the benefit of others and the glory of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this passage, quote, No man can practice what our Lord illustrates here unless he has finished with himself, with his right to himself, his right to determine what he shall do, and especially must he finish with what we commonly call the rights of the self. End quote. So in order to see what the, this teaching is, I, I want to look at it under four headings this morning. We're going to see, first of all, the Old Testament constraints. And we're going to look at what the Old Testament said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and what, what that meant in its context, and how it was meant to constrain Israel from the sin and the vengeance that was in their hearts when somebody wronged them. Then we're going to look at the Lord's overarching command. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. And that really is the, the overarching principle of everything that he says. Do not resist the one who is evil. And so there's a contrast between the Old Testament practice and, and what the Pharisees and scribes were doing and what the Lord says there. Don't resist one who is evil. And then we're going to look at the, the outworking of that as the Lord kind of explains to us a little further. What does he mean, do not resist the one who is evil? And I called that four hypothetical cases. And he gives us four examples of, of what this principle looks like of not resisting one who is evil. And then I want to have what I call the self-denying conclusion. And we're going to kind of bring it all together and see what, how we're supposed to apply this to our lives. So, First of all, then, let's look at the Old Testament 
constraint. The Old Testament constraint. The Lord starts this section once again by quoting from something in the Old Testament. Verse 38, He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. By now in this series, we should already be quite aware that the scribes and the Pharisees were misapplying and misusing these Old Testament Scriptures that the Lord's been quoting. And so what we want to do now is is go back and look at the Scriptures in their context, and then we'll talk about how they were being used in Jesus' day. In the first place we see this eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is in Exodus 21. And the context is laws and punishments for breaking the law. So there's, there's laws and then there's prescribed punishments for the breaking of those laws. And in verse 22, there's a scenario, if you're in Exodus 21, in verse 22 there's a scenario and there's two men fighting and one of them hits a pregnant woman. And if the baby comes out and, and there's no harm to the body, there should be a fine for the man who hit the baby. And at the end of verse 21, it says, and he shall pay the judges, or he shall pay as the judges determine. And then in verse 23, it says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now we need to note a couple of things here. First, this is a a general principle for judges to guide them in assigning penalties. The penalties that the judges assign should fit the crime. It shouldn't be a, a greater penalty than the crime itself. Second, this sentencing is to be done by judges. This is not about vengeance here. In fact, what we'll see in the next scripture that we look at is that this law was intended to prevent individuals from taking vengeance themselves. And this eye for an eye law was intended to constrain or restrain Israel from their natural desire to take vengeance into their own hands. Naturally speaking, men want revenge when somebody harms them. And revenge most often is angry, it's furious, and it goes beyond the original crime, right? When somebody hurts you, then you want to lash out and hurt them to a greater extent than what they hurt you. An example of this, maybe from Scripture, would be Lamech in Genesis chapter 4. He killed a man for wounding him. And that's the way that that vengeance and revenge typically works. You're going to hurt me? Well, I'll hurt you worse. Okay, you're going to hurt me back? I'm going to kill you, right? It kind of, you escalate the the thing. That's how vengeance and revenge and and typical angry responses are. In our anger and bitterness, we want to do more harm than was done to us. And often we, we see the harm that was done to us as worse than it actually was. And so there's this cycle that would happen that, that somebody would get hurt, somebody would, would hurt somebody else, somebody would do something wicked to somebody, and then there would be this retaliation that escalated the conflict, and it would kind of continue like this. And this is how things like family feuds started to happen, where there was almost war between families as they were trying to enact vengeance on the other for what they did to them. And so this law, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, fracture for a fracture law, was 
meant to take vengeance out of an individual's hands and give the responsibility for just and fair penalties to judges. Now, another place where we see the same thing, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, then, as we go through Scripture, is Leviticus chapter 24. So we could turn over to Leviticus 24. I'll start reading at verse 19. Leviticus 24.19, very similar. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he is done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. And so there it is again, and the same idea is repeated in Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. We won't go there, but to summarize, the, the Old Testament constraint here, God gave Israel this eye-for-an-eye standard to make the punishment fit the crime. And it was to prevent people from taking vengeance into their own hands. And it was meant to be a deterrent for crime. You knew that if you committed a crime, you would be punished in the same way as the crime that you committed. But unfortunately, by Jesus' day, this law was often being misused. And it had become a, a justification for personal revenge. Instead of guidance for judges, it had become a command for anyone who is wronged, right? Instead of leaving it in the hands of the judges, people started to see this as a command of what you must do to your neighbor when they did something evil to you. And so instead of preventing personal vengeance, it was actually used to promote revenge. If somebody knocked out your tooth, then you needed to knock out their tooth in return. And they had actually moved away a little bit by, uh, from, from this kind of tooth for tooth by assigning monetary amounts by Jesus' day. And so there was a certain amount for a tooth and a certain amount for an eye and there was a certain amount for a broken arm and so on. And so mo- for the most part, money was used, different types of, of monetary recompense was used, but, but still the law and its intent had been turned on its head and it had become a legal justification for revenge. And it was taken out of the hands of judges and given over to individuals as a mandate to exact revenge. And Jesus is going to address this situation now. He says, you you have heard if someone hurts your eyes, you should hurt theirs back. But now he's going to give us the proper response of a true kingdom citizen. And he's dealing here, and it's important to note this, he's dealing here on the individual personal level. Here's how we should respond personally if somebody wrongs us. And this is what we're going to call number two, the Lord's overarching command. And that's in verse 39, the first part of 39. Again, reading from verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And we'll stop there. This is the Lord's overarching command. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Here's the Lord's command to us. And this is a command to the individual believer. 
This whole section that we've been looking at is addressed to individual disciples. This isn't addressed to the nation, for example. If you try to apply this law to the nation, you would have to overthrow the government and law enforcement. Government and law enforcement should resist evil. Individual police officers should resist evil even if they are disciples of Christ. This isn't talking about that. The idea here is more about how should we respond personally if somebody wrongs us? How should we respond on the personal level? Not on the national level, not in the, the city council kind of level, but on a, on a personal level, if somebody wrongs us, how should we respond? Should we try to exact our pound of flesh? That's kind of how they, they say it sometimes. You're going to exact a pound of flesh. You're going to hurt me. I'm going to hurt you. If you're going to knock out my tooth, I'm going to knock out your tooth. Is that what we're supposed to do? Should we get even with others that hurt us as the scribes and the Pharisees taught? Well, Jesus says, no. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. Don't go after them. Don't try to get revenge. Don't go after their eye if they hurt your eye. Don't fight them if they fight you. Don't defend yourself and stand up for yourself. And what we'll see here is that Jesus wants us to let go of our rights so that we can serve others. Whenever our focus is on our rights and what we deserve, we are focused on ourselves. And when we're focused on ourselves, we're not serving others, we're not loving others, and we're not glorifying God. Now what Jesus says here, though, is shocking. Do not resist evil. And it means do not resist an evil person. Do not resist the one who is evil. And notice, the person that we're thinking about here is evil. They are wicked. They are doing something to us that is wrong and unrighteous and ungodly. They are an evil person. But Jesus says, don't resist. Don't retaliate. Don't revenge yourself. When they do evil against you, don't fight back. The word translated resist means to set myself against or to oppose or to resist or to withstand. And the idea is to set oneself against someone with hostility. And so Jesus says, don't do that. Don't set yourself up as an enemy of an evil person. Don't be hostile against evil people. Don't become their enemy, even if they are your enemy. This is very much then like the verses we'll look at next week. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, Jesus wants us to love our enemies. And we're to love even evil people. Listen to Luke 6, 27 and 28. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. 
Now, the way that this principle, do not resist evil, works in practice is shown in the four examples that follow. But before we look at those examples, I should make it clear that this does not mean that we shouldn't report crime or call the police. We, we should allow the government to resist evil. And so it's right for law enforcement to resist evil in society. It's good for evil people to pay the penalty for the wrong that they do against us. And so there is a, an allowance here to allow the police to do what they're to do, to, to allow law enforcement to do what they're doing, to even report crimes against evil people. It can be very, a, a very loving thing to allow someone to receive justice through the courts and through law enforcement. Again, this is just when somebody personally wrongs us, we're not to seek to revenge ourselves and take the law into our own hands. These words from our Lord are not saying that society should not resist evil people. This is on a personal level. We are commanded not to resist evil people ourselves, not to retaliate, not to seek vengeance or to fight back or to take justice into our own hands. Paul repeated the idea this way in Romans 12:17. He says, "Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, "Vengeance is mine, I will repay," says the Lord." And so let's look now at how this teaching or how to apply this teaching by looking at how the Lord explains further. And and there's these four hypothetical cases, and that's point three in your outline, four hypothetical cases. In the second part of verse 39 all the way to verse 42, we have these four cases, four examples, if you will. And the first one, again, is the second half of verse 39. It says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And I called this A, uh, number one of the first of the four examples, the shameful slap. So there's the, the shameful slap. And the Lord envisions one who slaps you on the right cheek. Now, if you think about this, If you're going to get slapped on the right cheek by a right-handed person, this would require a backhanded kind of a slap, right? Like this. And so you're, you're kind of face to face with the person and you're getting a backhanded slap. Now a slap on the cheek is humiliating and painful, but a backhanded slap is double humiliating and apparently it's even more painful. Now, I haven't experienced this myself, but that's what they tell me in the commentaries. It's at least double humiliating in the eyes of a Jew. And we need to remember that in the ancient Near East, shame and honor was a much bigger deal. And so to be shamed by getting slapped on the cheek was a huge deal in the ancient Near East. To be, to be dishonored was a, a massive thing. And it was a, it was a huge insult. And this is an insult, remember, by an evil person. In court, a backhanded slap was worthy of a double fine, and that, and that's recorded in the, the ancient Near East. A, a backhanded slap was worthy of double the fine. So what should a disciple of Christ do when they are injured and shamed? 
What should a disciple of Christ do when they're insulted and dishonored? Well, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. In other words, we should be willing to suffer the insult again. Don't fight for your honor. Don't defend your right to be respected and regarded. Let the Lord defend you if He sees fit. Now when we think about this, the Lord Jesus is the ultimate example of this. And I I want you to turn to John 18 as we think about what does this look like to, to receive a smack like this and turn the other cheek. So go to John 18 and we'll start reading at verse 19. John 18 verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Now notice that Jesus didn't turn the other cheek in a literal way. He even questioned the legitimacy of the strike, but he didn't retaliate or he didn't defend himself. Isaiah 50 verse 6 prophesies about this. It says this, quote, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And so Jesus allowed himself to be shamed and disgraced, but he knew that he would not ultimately be put to shame. He knew that God would yet vindicate him. And so he set his face like a flint and he endured the suffering and the strikes and the disgrace and the spitting. And that's the idea of turning the cheek. Matthew 26, verse 67. And actually, why don't I I have you turn to that one as well? Matthew 26, 67 says, Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And 1 Peter 2.20 says, What credit is it? If when you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's the idea again of turning the other cheek, this, this trusting in God, not reviling in return, not threatening in return, but la- allowing God to vindicate us just like the Lord did. And so instead of seeking recompense, we should gladly accept even another insult. John MacArthur said about this passage, quote, turning the other cheek symbolizes the non-avenging, non-retaliatory, humble, and gentle spirit that is to characterize kingdom citizens. And so that was the, the slap. Secondly, or B in your outline, the undersuit lawsuit in verse 40. Got the undersuit lawsuit. Jesus says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And as we go through these, we'll notice that they kind of go from the greater to the lesser. We have a slap, a lawsuit, then we have conscription, and then we have a request. And so there's kind of this, this de-escalation as, as we go from the slap to a lawsuit to this forcing to, to go one mile to just somebody simply requesting. But here's another example of not resisting an evil person. And so let's say that somebody takes you to court. And the assumption here is that this person has a valid case against you. They're going to sue you for your underwear. Now, we would never do that. You know, I don't care how much money you owe me. I do not want your underclothes. Um, but this was quite common in the ancient Near East. The, the tunic was underclothes, not necessarily underwear, but it was, it was undergarments. Commentator Leon Morris explains, he says, quote, normally a person would seem to have worn a loincloth, that's kind of like our underwear, a tunic, a cloak, which in brackets he says is an outer garment, a girdle, a head covering, and sandals. Jesus envisages a situation in which someone adopts legal measures to deprive the disciple of his tunic. End quote. So the tunic was your underlayer worn next to the skin. And it was fairly valuable. It was, it was worth enough to, to be worth a, a lawsuit over this thing. And so someone you owe money to would sue you to take your tunic away. Now the, the law allowed somebody to sue you for your tunic, but you could not be sued for your cloak, for your outer garment. The cloak was, was kind of like a coat and it was warmer, uh, it was the warmer outer layer of clothes, and it also doubled as a blanket at night. And so Exodus 22-25 says, if you lend money to any of my people who, with, with who, sorry, let me start again. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, if you, if you take their outer garment in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And so nobody was permitted to take somebody's cloak, or at least if you did take their cloak, you could have it for the day, but you had to return it at night. 
So what Jesus is commanding here is for us to go beyond what the law required. I like how R.T. France explained this. He said, quote, What the opponent could not have dared to claim, the disciple is to offer freely, even at the cost of leaving himself with nothing to wear or to keep warm with. End quote. And so when someone has a problem with us, we're to go above and beyond, as they say. We're to do more than is asked, more than even is legally required. You know, think about a lawsuit. If the, if the court decides against us, typically we grudgingly give the least amount that the court demands, right? If you're in a lawsuit and the court says you have to give X, we only give X and we give no more. But that's what Jesus is saying. We, we, we go beyond even what's required. Jesus says give more. We, we should, we should do this before we go to court if at all possible. We shouldn't ever end up in court because we are, we are trying to appease and, and satisfy the one who is angry against us or who is suing us even before we end up in court. And if we owe somebody money, we should do everything that we can to pay them back before it gets to that place. Again, Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Or Romans 13, verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so we're to give more than even is required. If somebody would sue us to take our our tunic, then we should give them our cloak as well. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about lawsuits a little bit. I want you to just flip over there in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and starting at verse 5. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is outraged that the believers are suing each other before the worldly courts. And he says in verse 5, I say this to your shame, Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And that should be our attitude, that we would rather suffer wrong. We would rather be defrauded than to sue another brother or to have a lawsuit against us or to, or to have somebody in the world that is upset with us. We would rather suffer wrong and be defrauded. That's the attitude the Lord is calling us to here. The next example is in verse 41, and I called this the soldier's conscription. The soldier's conscription, verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The picture here is of a a soldier. And a Roman soldier would sometimes force somebody to carry his goods for him. Now some scholars believe that the law allowed a Roman soldier to conscript somebody to carry his goods for up to one mile. But another commentator said that there's no ancient text that supports that claim. But When you think about it, one mile would typically be when the average person would be too tired to continue carrying a heavy load. And so what would happen is the the soldier would, would force this person to carry their goods. And Jesus says, if they force you to go one mile, go with them two. 
Now that word there, forces, was a technical term which meant to force into service or to compel somebody. And it was only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's when Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry Jesus' crossbeam. Matthew 27.32 says, And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And we see the same word used again in Mark 15.21 of that same situation. And so the, the soldiers forced Simon to carry Jesus' cross. Simon would have just been kind of going about his business, doing his thing. The soldiers come along and they force him, they compel him to take the cross. And, and theoretically, they would have forced him to do that for up to a mile. And so we have a person going about their business, working or doing whatever they were doing, and along comes, comes a soldier and the soldier says, carry this for me. And so what should we do? He says, carry this one mile. We should say, tell you what, I'll carry it too. Now imagine how rare that kind of an attitude was. Can you, can you imagine what would the soldier even think if you said that to him? Most people would grumble and complain. I'm sure the soldiers, any soldier in, in that day would have been used to grumbling and complaining and many would resist and even fight against that kind of a request. The soldier is infringing on the person's rights. They're, they're stealing your valuable time, making you carry this thing that you didn't want to carry to somewhere that you didn't want to go. They're making you do something that you don't desire to do and how should the re- disciple respond? They're to do more than is asked. We're to go above and beyond. Now the question might come to mind by now is, why should we do this? Why why live in this way? Why do this? Why have this kind of attitude? And I want to save that to the very end. But I need to clarify a, a bit here because we need to be careful about how far we apply this teaching. You see, there, there is a place for us to have some say in things like government policy, right? The, the, the Roman government, the Roman soldier was infringing on this per- person's rights. Now, in Canada, we do have the right to say that it's against the law to make me carry something for you. We have the right to try to influence government policy. And again, this illustration is meant to be at the personal level. This is a a personal infringement of my rights that helps the one who's infringing my rights. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna help this person by carrying something that they want me to carry. Plus, when we think about this, carrying somebody's goods isn't a sin. And so, what would be an example of this today? And I, I honestly, I, I tried to think about an example of this. And I, I couldn't think of an example involving a police officer or a, a bylaw officer or a soldier. We don't have anything like that. But maybe we could, maybe there will be a day when the police will come and force us to do certain tasks. Maybe we'll be in jail one day and we'll be forced to do certain labor for the, for the government, for the, for the police, for the jailers, and we're to go above and beyond for them in what they ask at that time. But the main idea here seems to be giving up one's own rights and desires to serve someone 
that you would not naturally be inclined to serve. And so that's the soldier's conscription. Now, the fourth hypothetical case is a bit surprising in the context. The other three all show at least, they're at least somehow semi-violent. You know, there's a a strike on the cheek. There's a a lawsuit against me. There's a soldier forcing me into service. And here in this fourth example, somebody wants to borrow money or they're asking for something. And I called this the solicitor's supplication. A a supplication is just a, a request. And so the, the solicitor, somebody wants something from us. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Literally, it's give to the one who asks. Give to the one who asks and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, this is kind of the more positive side of the teaching here. In the, in the other three, I'm not to fight back if I'm wronged. I'm to give more than required, more than was demanded. I I accept insult and shame and I I give more than I was sued for and I carry further than I was forced to. But now the person isn't forcing, they're not suing, they're not shaming, they simply ask. Maybe they want a loan even. They're going to pay this thing back, they say. David Turner, one of the commentators said, quote, not only is the disciple to avoid evil by non-retaliatory reaction when oppressed by a more powerful person, the disciple is also to promote good by a generous, benevolent response to those who are less powerful. And that seems to be the right idea here. It's generosity, benevolence. We're talking about love. And grace, we're to do good to everyone. And again, I feel the need to need to balance this out. In all of this, it, it almost seems like this teaching goes too far. If we gave every beggar who asked, we might actually help them waste money and en- enable them to be lazy and sloth- slothful. Paul even said in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he says this quote, for when, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so Paul didn't encourage giving when somebody refused to work. And so we should be careful about enabling somebody's sinful lifestyle. A, you know, a really helpful person knows when to lend money. They know when to give money as well as when to give correction and rebuke. And so there are some proper lines to this whole thing. There's a, a proper boundary on this somewhere, but still we, we need to be careful not to just explain this verse away. Our hearts are selfish and deceitful. We should not justify our selfishness or our greed. The Lord is describing in this verse a a kind of righteousness that He wants every disciple to have. Now one thing I thought was helpful is that in Jesus' day, begging was not very common. And it was really the a last and an unwanted option for most people. 
It was viewed as a shameful thing. And what that meant was that, that typically only the, the really needy begged, only the truly needy begged, those who were unable to work for some valid reason. And I think that's a little bit different than what you and I might see, say, somewhere like downtown Edmonton or downtown city where there's, there's homeless people. Some of them are needy for sure, but, but often they have chosen that lifestyle. And so we need to be careful about, about giving to everyone who asks and, and what that means. But we do want to apply this to our life. Now the text just simply says, give. And it doesn't even say what to give. Now, naturally, we assume that money's involved, but there's a lot of areas to give outside of money. And so I came up with some things that, that we could give those who ask us that's outside of money. We can give time to those who ask us. We can give counsel. We can give acts of service. We can give help to those who ask. We can give our talents and our resources We can give the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. We can give goodness and, 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 and give of ourselves and give of our lives to everyone who asks. We're not to turn people away. If somebody asks us for, for something and we can give it or we can lend it, then we should do that for them. If it won't harm the other person or it won't be some kind of failure to care for our own family, which we're, we're called to care for first, we should give what we can to anyone that we can help in any way. Listen to Deuteronomy 15, verse 7, starting at verse 7. If, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you and you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging, shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Thought those were some good verses as we think about giving that we should have an open hand and an open heart. We shouldn't grudgingly give. We shouldn't think to ourselves like they did at that time where, where if you lent to somebody and the seventh year was near that, that they would be released from that debt very soon. And so you shouldn't think that way, but you should instead freely give. And there shouldn't even be a, a, a grudgingness in our hearts. See, Jesus wants us to have a generosity that has an open heart to care for others. We're not to be selfish or stingy in the kingdom of God. And we're not to be grieved when we give. We're to to give what we have joyfully to those in need. This was the 
the spirit of Paul if we think about what does it look like to do this? How do we, how do we look like this? How do we give to everyone who asks? Well, Paul is a great example of this. In his ministry, Paul worked night and day so that he wouldn't be a burden to the new churches. And so he, he earned his own money so that, that they wouldn't be impoverished trying to support him. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, he says, so being affectionately desirous for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. And so Paul is going to share of himself. He's going to share of his life because he had a, a love for the people in Thessalonica. He says in verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we would not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is a great example of this kind of a giving spirit. He gave of himself. He shared the gospel and he encouraged and charged and, and served the body, served the people of God, gave up of himself for them and gave them what he had, which was knowledge of God's word. This was also the spirit of Jesus Christ in Matthew 20 and verse 26. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so Jesus calls us to imitate him in this not coming to serve, but to, not, not coming to be served, but to serve And He gave His life a ransom for many. We're to give our lives, not as a ransom, but we're to give our lives for others. This is what the Lord is calling us to here. Now I want to kind of try to tie all of this together in what I called the fourth one in your outline, the self-denying conclusion. So this is the self-denying conclusion. And so we ask, what is the common thread through all of this teaching? What is the common thread in these verses? We're not to seek vengeance and pay someone back an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But instead, we're not to resist or even oppose or be hostile towards an evil person. The four hypothetical cases aren't meant to be a new law. And I think this is really important to get here. This isn't a new law. Jesus isn't trying to show us exactly what to do when somebody smacks you on the right cheek and how to turn the other side also. These aren't, these aren't literal things, but we're, we're meant to, to draw from these examples. It's not a, a new law to follow, a new set of rules. If somebody sues you for your tunic, you, that you're supposed to give them your cloak. It's deeper than that. These are examples to show what Jesus meant when he said, do not resist an evil person. It's not simply a a command on how to respond to a backhanded slap. This whole section from 517 to 548 is about the true righteousness in our lives. 
True righteousness is a matter of the heart. We need to get beyond the outward actions described here and see what's at the heart of all of this teaching. And I think the answer is that Jesus is telling us that we need to be done with the self. We need to forget about ourselves and live to serve others for Jesus' sake and for God's glory. All of these examples go back to the rights and desires and preferences and wishes of the self. You know, if you slap me in the face, I want to fight for my honor. I want to protect my dignity. And so you see how the focus then is on me? It's the same with the lawsuit. If, if I give my tunic and, and my cloak, then I'm, I'm denying myself for the other person. I'm giving up my so-called rights for them. And the Christian is called to give up his or her rights, to deny his or herself and live for the benefits of others and the glory of God. And so we ask, well, how do we do this? How do we put this into practice? Well, first let me say that you cannot do this unless you are born again. The natural man is hostile to God and doesn't submit to God's law and cannot live like this. An unsaved person doesn't even desire to live like this unless God is drawing him to himself. And so the first thing, if you want to, if you want to live like this, the first thing is to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. Trust Him to cleanse you of your sins and forgive you and make you right with God. And then, if you are born again, isn't, isn't there a desire to live utterly selfless in your life? Doesn't it appear to you as a, a wonderful thing to live your life to bless others? Don't you want to be like Christ who came to serve and to give Himself? And I think for every truly born again person, there's something that is, that is sweet about this thought of denying myself, giving up my rights, giving up my life to be a blessing to others and to glorify God. You see Paul loving the church and, and there's part of you that says, yes, I want to live like that. There's probably another part of you that says, yikes, that's going to cost me, that's going to hurt. But, but part of you says that is the right thing for me as a believer to do. And so I see Paul and I see Jesus and I say, yes, I want to live like that. And so again, how do we do it? Well, first we need to be born again. You need to be born again. You need to be a new creation. You need to be in Christ and have the Holy Spirit in you to even to have a remote possibility of doing this. But then second, we have this huge problem when it comes to denying ourselves because we are ourselves. Right? We naturally love ourselves and we care about ourselves and we prefer ourselves. And so how am I going to serve and love an evil person who shames me and slaps me and sues me and forces me to do things I don't want to do? How am I going to deny myself in order to, to love them and serve them? Well, I think the answer is we need to look beyond them and serve them for the Lord's sake. And I just want to show you a, a great verse. Why don't you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we see how the gospel motivates us in this kind of a life. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 14, a favorite verse of mine. Paul says there, the love of Christ controls us. And he's talking there about the, the saving love of Christ. The gospel 
controls him and those who are with him. And he says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. And he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ there. He has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so we see here that Christ has died for us and there's this connection. If Christ died for us, then, then we have died. And the reason that we have died is that so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who for their sake died. We're to now live for the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, who gave His life to pay the penalty for our sin and was raised from the dead. That is the one that we are to live for. And so we need to look beyond ourselves and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to live for Him. And so first, we must be born again. Second, we need to live our lives for Jesus' sake and for the glory of God. And the way that we do that is day by day, moment by moment, making choices to honor God and to deny ourselves, right? In, in the moment by moment life that we live, we need to think, I am going to do what I do in my day to day for Jesus sake and not for my sake. I'm going to deny what I instantly want for my own gratification. And I'm going to live and do this thing for God and for his glory. And so it's a moment by moment, day by day, dying to ourself and, and choosing things that glorify God and are like Christ. And the third thing, we need to be born again. Second, we need to live for Jesus' sake and for God's glory. And the third thing that's going to help us to deny ourselves is we need to have an eternal mindset. We need to look beyond this world. We need to look beyond this time to eternity. And so we deny ourselves now knowing that we will be rewarded for all eternity. And I, I want to close just with two scriptures then. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A wonderful promise from the Lord that if we deny ourselves, take up our cross, live for His glory, and to serve others, we will find life, we will find joy in that life. And ultimately, we will be saved eternally. And then 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4, sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and following, and, and I would just say, you should spend some time even this week and look at this passage. There is so much in here. But Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay. And he's talking about the treasure of the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life 
in you. And you see what Paul's saying here? He's, he's dying to himself. He's, he's giving up his desires and he, he's afflicted, but it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't do him in. And he continues to, to live for Jesus' sake. And he's recognizing that as he dies to himself, the life of Jesus is living through him. And he says in verse 13, as we continue, he says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so what he's saying is he, he denies himself and he's doing it for Christ's sake and for God's glory, but he's also doing it for the sake of the Corinthians. So that as God blesses the Corinthians through him denying himself, there's going to be this increase of thanksgiving in the lives of the Corinthians that's going to glorify God. And so he says, it's all for your sake. I'm, I'm denying myself to be a blessing to you that God might ultimately be glorified. And so he says again in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And here's the eternal perspective. For this light momentary affliction, this light momentary affliction of denying myself and even facing persecution is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so the way to live like this is, first of all, we need to be born again. Second, our lives need to be lived for Jesus' sake and for the glory of God. And third, we need to have an eternal mindset that remembers that even though we suffer in this age, that we will be richly rewarded in the age to come. We are to deny ourselves and live for Christ. And that's what the Lord is calling us to in this passage. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this passage. And we thank you that you call us not to live for ourselves, but to live for you, for Christ. And we pray that we would live this way, Father. Forgive us for, for where we have fallen short of your holy standard in this way. Help us to deny ourselves and to live for, for Christ. And we pray these things so that, as you had said earlier in this sermon, that, that others would see our light shine and to see the good works from our lives and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. We pray this for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.